All right. Thanks again, Sam, and good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hiawatha. Welcome back to most of you. Welcome to uh, those of you, though, who are joining us for the first time maybe today. Thanks for visiting our church, like Spence said earlier. Uh, my name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, we are going to dive right in today to our next sermon uh, in this uh, six-week series we have called What is the Church? And so um, there's no main text to turn to right away because it's topical, but uh, we'll be looking at Ephesians 4 today. Uh, as well as um, a part of 1 Corinthians 12. Uh, but today, just so you know where we've been um, and where we're going to answer this question, we're going to look at it from these six biblical angles. Or it's kind of like six biblical realities or metaphors or symbols uh, for the church. It's kind of all that together in a way. They're, they're metaphorical, but they're also, as we'll see today, they're real. They're realities. Uh, and the more we believe that, the more sacred and beautiful the church becomes and, and the gospel itself through the doctrine of the church. But uh, we are in week three today, uh, so we've already uh, looked at the gathering of the church, the, she- the, sorry, the gathering of Christ, the sheep of Christ. Today is the body of Christ. The next week, uh, the army of Christ, then the voice of Christ, and lastly, the bride of Christ. And so there's more to say about the church than this, um, but this, these are the six approaches we're taking. These are all biblical themes again. And the goals are basically for us, those who call the church home, who are Christians uh, here or elsewhere, if you're visiting, that's great too, but um, to bolster our ecclesiology. Ecclesiology means the study of the church, to bolster it, uh, to make it more biblical and robust uh, for us, and, and also to answer big questions like, who are we? Because if you're a Christian, you are the church. And so in a lot of ways, we're talking about in anthropology here, we're talking about ourselves in this. Who are we as Christians? What does it mean to be uh, the, the body of Christ, like we'll talk about today, or the army of Christ? We'll, we'll talk about what does it mean to fight uh, in spiritual warfare, the voice of Christ. I mean, all these things we'll talk about definitionally. And so if you're not a Christian yet, we, I, I hope that it'll be informational for you too, that you can get more of a glimpse into the way that the Bible talks about these things and the way that Christians think about these things, uh, whether it's new or not to you. Uh, but uh, whether you're Christian or not, the ultimate goal is to see the gospel in these doctrines. So how are these things good news? How is it good news that the Bible talks about the church as the body of Christ? That'll be today. How is it good news that the Bible talks about the, the idea that, the, that, that Christians are like sheep? That was last week, and the first two are on, on our website if you want to catch up. But, um, so that's the big question that we'll be looking at a little bit uh, later on. But the format's the same. We'll define the, the term today, the body of Christ, uh, we will talk about what it is, what the Bible has to say about it. We'll, we'll see the gospel in that as well. But then we'll talk about um, how this takes shape at Hiawatha. Then we'll, again, kind of land the plane with the bigger question of how is this gospel truth? How is it good news? How does this relate to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? And so uh, a lot of this will kind of mishmash together. They overlap, uh, but they are sort of distinct at the same time. So if, you're, if you like order, like kind of like to know where we're going, hopefully that helps you um, get your bearings. So... Here we go. The body of Christ is today's topic. Uh, what is the body of Christ is the question. So again, the, the broader question is, what is the church? One of the answers is the body of Christ. But then we could ask, well, what is that? What is the body of Christ? And there are two uh, things I want to talk about today. One really shortly at the beginning. We'll spend the rest of our time on the second thing. But the first is, the body of Christ is a new Eve. The church is a new Eve. So Eve, referring to the first woman, uh, at the beginning of the Bible, the first woman ever created, uh, the, the wife of Adam, who was made from one of his ribs. Uh, the way she was made is important for today, but before I get there, let me read from Ephesians 5, 29 to 31. 
Uh, and actually, I'll just kind of summarize this, but it's all here on screen. It says in this paragraph, which is written to a New Testament church, he's talking about marriage, but he's linking that theologically with the, 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 the greater idea that Christ as a husband figure has poured himself out for his wife, the church. And so he spins off on that too, saying, husbands, this is for you, but then he backs up and says, husbands and wives, understand that Christ has as a husband figure poured himself out for his wife. And as it says here, he nourishes his wife, the church. He cherishes. Isn't that amazing? Just right off the bat that the idea that Christ cherishes us, like we're special to him, we're sacred, we mean something to him. This is, this is gospel imagery, right? That we are loved by him, like a husband loves a wife, but even higher because this is a perfect love from God. But then it says, for we are members of his body. Christ nourishes and cherishes us, for we are members of his body. Then it proceeds to quote a part of Genesis 2, the first book of the Bible, that in context talks about Adam and Eve. Adam being made first from the dust, then Eve being made from his side. And then says, when they were married, this is the first marriage ever, but you know, marriage happens right at the beginning of the Bible. It says, therefore, this is a paradigm. So a man will leave his father and mother, he will be united to his wife, they'll become one flesh, and they will have one flesh intimacy physically and emotionally and spiritually, and there'll be kind of a movement together then forward onward into the rest of their married life together. So the connections that it makes here between the reality of Christ's love for the church and the reality of the historical story and reality of, of Adam and Eve is really important to see. And, and so to expand out a bit, remember at the beginning, if you've read this before, and I'll, I'll say it here anyway, but remember how, how Eve was was made, and I mentioned this, but remember like the, the, the circumstances surrounding how she was made, how God, it said, put Adam into a deep sleep. sleep. It must have been like this amazing divine anesthesia because he was like open chest surgery, right? Like he went into his chest, he took out, like literally went into his chest, took out a rib and made Eve uh, from a rib. So it's this really weird story. And in fact, if you know nothing about the Bible and just start there, which is fine to start there, but you're probably kind of scratching your head, right? Like, this is kind of odd. This is the very beginning. Why is this here? We find out later why it's there, because the how behind how Eve was made relates to the how behind the church was made. And so Ephesians 5 kind of gets at this. I'm expanding out a bit here to, to help us really dig deeper and to see how deep the rabbit hole goes here. When we ask the question, what is the body of Christ? And we see how Eve-like really theologically and mystically and spiritually we are. And so for clarity, here's the connections. Like Adam was put to sleep and God created Eve from his rib, so does Jesus go to sleep, or more than that, he dies, and God creates the church, the new Eve, from his body or from his bodily death. And so through that, God recreates. He makes us new. We are remade. And so do you see the connections? It could be said then, that we, like Eve, are actually a part of our husband's, our spiritual husband's body. Like Eve was actually Adam's body, so is the church actually the body of Christ. This is where this idea comes from. It's not just Ephesians 5. It's not just this thing we say about the church when we say we're going to gather with the body or pray for the body. And that's good that we say that. It should be a part of our vernacular because it's true and good and beautiful. But it's bigger than that. It goes way back to the beginning of the Bible where we see this paradigm uh, kind of set forth, where God just has this habit of making brides from the side of husband figures. That's how the Bible begins, and it's how it ends. 
And so this odd little verse here in Ephesians and this odd little story in Genesis about open chest surgery, when you think about it, says more about salvation to us than the longest lists of moral code uh, that, that those lists could ever dream of. We are saved because Jesus went to sleep for us. We are saved because someone else gave up his body for us so that we might live. We are saved because one was pierced in the side and in the ribs for us. And so going back to what I was saying in John 19, it, it talks about how Jesus on the cross, after he died, uh, the soldiers pierced him in the side and in the ribs with a spear. And back in Genesis, when it says that he was, was taken out of um, Adam's, uh, or by a rib of Adam, it actually says side, like he's taken out of his side. Same words are being used here to help us make these connections. The former is physical and kind of partial and weird and figurative. The latter, though, Christ being a second Adam and us being a second Eve, the latter is the fulfillment of these things. It, it should not surprise us when we see that God creates us through that, through him. And not just him, but through his side and ribs being addressed or affected or broken or pierced. God, again, begins the Bible with this story and he ends it with a husband figure being broken and pierced in order to create a bride. And so it's important to see these things for many reasons, but one of which is uh, it, it informs our understanding of salvation. And I'll come back to this to end the sermon as well, but I want to start this way too by saying that our ultimate acceptance as sinners by God, our ultimate salvation, what it means to be saved and to have the hope of eternal life is not based on whether or not we've broken the law, but on whether or not Jesus was broken and pierced in the ribs for us. And he was. That's what matters. Not whether or not you've broken the law, but whether or not Jesus' side was opened up. Because to be one with God, to be the bride of Christ, to be his body, for there to be no more separation between us and him, means that that has to come before it. It happens in the Old Testament, and it happens on the highest level in the New. And so before we go any further today, I wanted to start here for a couple of reasons. One, just to get a sense for the grace that there is in this imagery, that Jesus bled for us, for sinners. And, and to go back to Sam's presentation, he died there for Nazis. He died there for murderers. He died there for concentration camp owners and operators. And he equally died there for you and me because we're no better. This is the scandal of grace. This is that, that God gave everything away for us. His son, Jesus gave everything away, his body. Not just like Adam who gave a rib away, but Jesus gave his whole body away. Not just his ribs inside, but everything, his final breath. He wasn't just put to sleep. He was put to the ultimate sleep, to death for us before rising again three days later. So to get a sense for the grace in this, that to be the body of Christ is an amazing, grace-filled thing, not based on your works, but based on his love for us. But then second, relatedly, and I was kind of mentioning this before too, to get a sense for the sacredness of the church here. You guys and I, if you're a Christian in the room, we are made from Christ. Isn't that amazing? I mean, if this is true, and it is, it means we're actually made from Christ. We're our, we are a part of him. He's a part of us. We have oneness with him spiritually. 
And this is true for all of us, right? Not just true for us, but for our friends in the room, for strangers we don't know yet in the room, but who are still Christians, that all of us are the body of Christ, made from Jesus' body. That's not just a metaphor. That is a reality. And so when we shape it that way and talk about it that way, can you kind of start to see how this raises the bar of sacredness and how it starts to help us value church uh, maybe even more, that that can almost like single-handedly, that idea, make us just take a deep breath and step back and say, a church is really an amazing place and an amazing people. Like sinners, like really bad people like us are being saved and classified as sons and daughters, but we can also call them the, like, the body of Jesus on earth. It's incredible. It's an incredible scandal, but an incredible beauty as well. So on a macro level, it can, it can shape this. Like, to really think that we're the body, it can, it can shape how we view church and the importance of it. But on a micro level, so think like relationships in the church as well, this can also shape how we look at people, how we interact with Christians, maybe Christians that we don't get along with that well or we're at odds with or we've been hurt by. That will, that is happening. That will happen. That has happened. We're sinners saved by grace. We're messy people. And so when that happens, though, when we look at Christians, we're not just seeing people that happen to agree with us on an idea, but we're actually looking at the body of Christ. We're seeing someone who's made in Christ's image, Romans 8 says, who actually is, in a mystical way, somehow, the body of Christ. Like that, that does have power to kind of disarm us a bit and to make us maybe love in strange ways, or to depend on people, to look at people as though we need them because Jesus is in them. We don't just agree with each other. We are the body of Christ towards one another. And so it might quell fighting. It might quell, disagree, uh, it might quell just dismissing one another and in, in the place uh, love and dependence and sacredness when we look at people and maybe pray for them more and treat them very sacredly and specially, other Christians, because of, this, because of this truth. All right, so have that in mind as we go. That's a big platform to kind of jump off of for the rest of today, and I'll come back to some of that. But the big thing I want to do today is answer this question from this angle, which is, so what is the body of Christ? Uh, it is a gift-laden community. All right, so when, when the body of Christ, that phrase is used in the Bible, it is talked about um, almost many places, but it almost always comes up in reference to spiritual gifts in the New Testament, which is a massively important but uh, quantitatively large uh, subject matter in the Bible. I was talking to Spence this week, or Spencer, I think you asked me, was it Wednesday or something? You're like, so you're going to talk about spiritual gifts? And you're going to, I forgot how you put it, and I kind of laughed because I said... <laughs> Because I'm like, I mean, kind of, like barely. I don't know, I don't know. He was, he was knowing this is going to happen too, but we've been talking about this for a while. But like 10 years ago when we preached through 1 Corinthians, uh, I took seven full weeks to preach through spiritual gifts. So it's not, it's just not going to happen. I'm not going to keep here until Friday. So um, we're going to be done here in just a little, just a little bit. Uh, but with that said, though, I, wanna, I do want to get a 30,000-foot view. I want to talk about gifts in, in the sense that it will answer this question, what is the body of Christ? It is a gathering of believers, a community of believers that have spiritual gifts. All right, so Ephesians 4 says, we'll start here, there is one body and one spirit, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. 
Therefore, it says, when he ascended on, speaking of Jesus, is quoting now a psalm from the Old Testament that's speaking of Jesus ahead of time, so that he is Jesus. When he, Jesus, ascended on high, he led a host of captives. The captives are us. He led a host of redeemed sinners, and then he gave gifts to them. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he has also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. All right, so kind of a trippy passage in some ways here, but essentially what he's saying is the church is one unified body with varied expressions of grace given to every Christian who makes up a local church according to Christ's gift. So it relates to Christ's gift of salvation. Keep that in mind as we go forward, according to Christ's gift. And then it says, it kind of describes his gift in a way through the language of the psalm, which was essentially that he descended to earth out of heaven, became like us, then descended further when he was buried in the heart of the earth, having died for our sins, then ascended out of that tomb three days later uh, into new glorified, perfect kind of recreational life. Then he ascended into heaven uh, 40 days after that event. And so it's this idea of coming down to gather sinners and then ascending back up uh, to reign in victory as king of the earth and universe and rule over all things. Um, But that's the gift. That's what he came to do. And that's like we would say the ultimate spiritual gift. The ultimate gift, right? Given to sinners. The ultimate grace. Spiritual gifts relate to that then. And I'll explain more of that here as as we go. But, But first, in verse 12, so same paragraph, just a couple verses down, it talks about the purpose of the gifts and it links it with maturity. It says, the purpose of the gifts is the the building up of the body of Christ to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, the building up or edifying or making mature, growing in our faith, the body of Christ. So we may no longer be like kids tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and craftiness of deceitful schemes. So, I would like paraphrase, paraphrase that by saying that the gifts help us finish our race. The gifts make us healthy. The gifts like make us know theology so well that we're, we can sniff out in a discernful way what half-truths are and what false theology is. And so we're not tossed around by everything. We're not like, oh, one day, oh, that's so amazing. And the next day we hear this, the opposite thing and say, wow, no, that's amazing. And then the third day, yet a third way of viewing Jesus and saying, wow, no, I believe that. Because, you know, that's, that's an immature, um, childlike way to approach information and reality and truth. But, but like Christian adults, so to speak, and I mean that spiritually when I say adults, have maturity. They, they know how to dismiss things that are false and, and so forth. So spiritual gifts grow Christians up. We, we grow in Christ. We grow in the gospel and become more centered on it and more nourished by it. So a simple definition of gifts, this is my definition, but there's lots of ways to say this. Uh, I would say gifts are varied expressions of God's grace given to all Christians by the Holy Spirit, especially for the common good and gospel edification of the church. 1 Corinthians 12 again says, there are many, there are a variety of gifts for, in the church. There are varieties of service, a variety of activities that happen relationally and through Christians in the context of the local church. But it is the same God who empowers them and everyone. 
that this is a key verse. To each, to all Christians, has been given a manifestation of the Spirit, a piece of the Spirit of God, a break off of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the graces, the gifts that he gave us when Jesus walked out of that tomb and just poured out gifts to people when they believed in him and trusted in him for the forgiveness of their sin. A manifestation of all of that has been given for the common good of the church. So, you know, with the exception of maybe evangelism, though that can be seen for the church as well, all the gifts in the Bible listed out are for the sake of other Christians. We need to use them for the sake of encouraging other believers. They are not a way to understand how you do outreach towards, towards non-Christians. That's not what the gifts are for. Not that they can't look that way. They can't take shape towards people who are not Christians yet. That, that can totally happen. But when the gifts are talked about, they are always talked about to churches about relationships within the church. Always, 100% of the time. 100% of the time. And so we have to, the common good here idea is for the common good of other believers in the church. So they include things like, and these are some of the lists of the New Testament, gifts are things like teaching, pastoring, encouragement, administrating, acts of service, generosity, leadership, and mercy, all the way to things like miraculous healings, uh, prophecy, and speaking in tongues. All of them done underneath the banner of love, as 1 Corinthians 12 and 13 uh, clearly teach. How this takes shape at Hiawatha, there's a few things. I put up a little summary paragraph there. I'll unpack this. There's so much to say. Uh, but uh, for starters, we believe in these. It's probably obvious that we do. It'd be weird if I said, actually, we don't believe in the gifts at this point after all that. But anyway, uh, but we do. We, be- we, we believe in, in, in the gifts. They're in our statement of faith. The word gifts is in our statement of faith. It is in our core value statements because we believe in and have a core value of spirit-empowered ministry here. It's written down in the founding and governing documents of the church. It's in our employee handbook here, for crying out loud. It's everywhere. It's a big deal. Uh, We talk a lot about it. We call our members to it and regular tenders. And to to all Christians, like kind of like I am today, but especially our members, to value it, to value them, identify what the Spirit's doing in their life, and then to practice the use of gifts every single day, no exaggeration, till we die. (laughs) You know, like literally, that's, that's why we're here in part, that's why we're here, is to build, uh, build the church. On, on a broader scale, we are Protestants, uh, which means many things, but it means that we believe in the priesthood of believers. Uh, that means all Christians are priests. Uh, there's no more priesthood, which means we're not Catholic. It, it means um, that, that further down the line, it means that all Christians are called to the ministry of building up the church into full maturity. That all are saints. If you're a Christian, you're a saint. There's no special kind of realm of saints identified that we venerate. Uh, all are saints, the Bible says. When the churches are written to in, the, in the New Testament, it writ- it's written to the whole church, and they're called saints. To the saints at Philippi, to the saints at Ephesus. All are saints and all are priests. Leadership is important in the church, but I'm a pastor, not a priest. Uh, Christ is your priest. You have access to God only through Jesus, not an earthly image anymore. That was an Old Testament pattern that's been absolved now and wrapped up in Christ and fulfilled, so passed on. So then, going back to Ephesians 4.12, we believe it's a pastor's job to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Uh, Spence and I 
our lay pastors, Mark and Peter, right now. Um, some of you have been elders before. Uh, Eric has been an elder. Um, Jesse is taking a year off, but um, might be forgetting people. But anyway, it's our, we, we view this, that that team, in part, exists to, to equip the saints, all Christians, for the work of the ministry. So it's not our job to do everything. We're not priests that do everything, who are consulted about everything. Uh, we're pastors that guide. We train leaders to lead others. We train a few to, in turn, be the pastors to you. Group leaders, other leaders, interns, staff, whatever. We're, we're, um, that's how we think. In fact, on my job description as a church is that idea right at the top. You guys don't see my job description, but some of you do. But it's there, uh, right at the top. It's uh, Ephesians 4.12 is quoted, and like, I, I think I do like three big things for Hiawatha, and one of them needs to be, I mean, I want to be evaluated on this, in fact. I should be. Is, am I equipping the saints for the work of the ministry? Am I equipping you guys for the work of the ministry? Does that make sense? Like, it should be. So, so I do some of it. There's key things I do. There's key things Spencer does. Is it on your job description? It should be. Write it on there. Yeah, it should be. I don't know if it's on your. It should be on. It's on Spencer's. It's spiritually on Spencer's. It should be. Um, I couldn't remember. I said that for a service too. But anyway. Um, anyway, that's, that's a core conviction here for us. Much to say on that. On a practical level though, and I'm going to just shoot a few things off here, uh, kind of from the, off the cuff because these might not seem like they're in any particular order. They're not really. But this means here that we'll pray for miraculous healings. We believe they still exist. Um, we'll believe in other miraculous gifts, but we won't place them at the center. The gospel is the center, not whether or not people are healed from cancer. Um, though we'll pray for that, and God, we've seen God do that. Uh, we'll value other gifts as well that might seem more mundane or lesser, even though the Bible says they're not, though. They're indispensable. We need all the gifts to be healthy. But above all, we'll value love the love that God showed us through Jesus and the love we have for each other. Love is greater than spiritual gifts, 1 Corinthians 13 says. That's another sermon. Um, but we'll also, um, we'll also encourage each other not to get too hung up on the exact gift lists in the Bible. Um, they're, they're not exhaustive anyway, and we know that because they're all different, the four times it comes up. So Romans 12, 1 Peter 4, Ephesians 4, and 1 Corinthians 12 and following. Um, those four places, they're not, they're not the same list which tells us they probably aren't like exhaustive, all-encompassing lists each time. They overlap, for sure, but they're not exhaustive. So we encourage people to consult them, think about them. Uh, it's likely that one of those gifts, at least, you'll think, I think that's something the Spirit's doing in my life, and so we don't not use them, obviously, they're in the Bible, but they're not exhaustive. But instead to think, not just about that, but about a talent you may have that... God uses to be the conduit for the act of service to come through. Sorry, the gift of service to come through. Does that make sense? So like if you're uh, good at gardening and someone else in the church asks for advice because they kill everything they plant and they ask you to come over and plant a vegetable garden or plant perennials in the spring or consult on landscaping or something, what does good in shade, what does good in sun, and you go do that, you give part of your time to do that in love, what that is spiritually is the spiritual gift of service and generosity or helps coming through the conduit of you being good at horticulture. But that's the talent. That's the hobby. That's not the gift. The gift is service. Does that make sense? 
So it kind of widens out how you might think about gifts. There's a lot of gifts, but also think about talents you have and think, how can God use that for you to serve the church? What are you, what's your hobby? What are you good at? What are you interested in dabbling in? Like plumbing. I dabble in plumbing. Actually, don't. Maybe you dabble in plumbing. That you can use that. Some of you dabble in plumbing. But, or it's, elect, it's electrical work, or it's other forms of housework, or it's... Um, make it all about housework. I didn't mean to do that. But I mean, it, it, that's, that's a big part of our lives, though. So, but what, what talent do you have? A past job. What talent do you have that, that serve, the, the gift of service can, can come through? So we're not just limiting how we think about this to gift lists. Because um, spiritual gift inventories, you guys ever taken one of those or heard of those? Like an inventory online or something? Or, um, we do that. We have one of those here. They're okay. They're okay. They're pretty good sometimes, but they're, they're mostly just okay. They're like not really that. They're not that kind of all-encompassing because unless you talk about what I'm talking about, people like take them sometimes and say, I don't think any of them like sound like me or something. And they're like, well, dude, what good was that? You know? And so, or we get too kind of hung up on the miraculous gifts and we think that's just weird. So what, what's better though is to think about, I think, talents and also look at the lists and take them both together. Then also to think we probably have more gifts um, you probably have more gifts than you realize. This is another big thing that I, I wish I had more time to talk about, but I'll just say quickly. Um, if you just know the gospel sufficiently, and you do if you're a Christian, and you encourage others in it, and you do what you can to love the church, that can end up looking like many of the gifts at the exact same time. They might overlap, you know? Like, so often we think about, oh, there's like, there's one prophet in the church, it's the preacher, and there's like a couple people with discernment, and there's one guy that thinks he has the gift of healing, but I'm not so sure. And there's someone that speaks in tongues, that's kind of the, the weird gal over there speaks in tongues or something. And then we're like, yeah, I guess I have service, you know? That's like how it goes a lot. It's just like, no, it should be, it should just be different than that. It should be like, you probably have most of the gifts, actually. Now, that's not to say that you know, there aren't people that have a higher form of the gift or more mature form of it or a more emblazoned form of a gift that we can't acknowledge and celebrate. Not to say that, but it's just to say if you know the gospel sufficiently, if you encourage people in it, if you try to love the church, serving them, giving to them, it means that you're probably gifted in, with many of those listed out gifts, uh, you know. Or another example, if you know your Bible decently well, you probably have the gift of discernment. Most of you probably have the gift of discernment. It's not like a gift that one or two of you have. It doesn't mean that like what, you know, two of you don't have it really well or something. It just means that you know the truth, so you know what falsehood is. It's like, duh, right? You know what the truth is. And so you can discern what falsehood is, just, and you can bless the church with that by being a picture of the truth of Christ, by teaching that, speaking that, encouraging that. But I think we do a disservice to the church by saying that, yeah, probably one of us has discernment, you know, one of us has healing. Like, no, we're too big for that. You know, we have a lot of people here, many Christians. Most of us, if we know the Bible, these will probably have discernment at some point in our life. It's just a spirit that does that. All right? Or if you strive to love the church, you probably have generosity. You probably have the gift of service. You probably have the gift of helps. They probably all happen in tandem at some points in your life when you're trying to help a Christian out. So don't kind of just give them each kind of these individual lanes and don't let them speak to each other. Let them integrate. Let them play off each other. Um, and don't limit 
um, and don't overthink this. Don't overthink it. Um, most, most of you Christians have a lot more gifts than, than, than you think. All right. That may have opened a can of worms, but that's all I'm going to say. Our, our, our desire here is, is manifold, um, but we want, in all this, we want the church to be fun and life-giving and joyous. We don't want it to be something we simply attend because that's not what it is. These truths help us get outside ourselves, and joy is not found within us. Joy is found outside of us. First in Christ, and then as we put others first, for, as Jesus said, it's better to give than to receive, and it's more joyous to give than, than to receive. So our motivation in the gifts here with all this stuff is truth and goodness. Our motivation is truth because it's true, it's biblical. We want to be true to what it's saying, but our motivation is also goodness and beauty. Like we want, we think church is more fun, it's more life-giving, it's better to value the gifts than to not. It's better to talk about them than to not because we see more Jesus and he's the most life-giving being in the universe, right? So uh, more on that later. But truth and goodness are motivations for us here. All right, last here, the last section anyway is uh, what is the, where's the gospel in this? How is the body of Christ good news? Uh, first, really quick, uh, they are spiritual gifts, not spiritual paychecks. Obviously, right? They're not earned. God gives them partially. Um, it's not that crazy to think at some point in your life you might look at another Christian in one of your not-so-grace-filled moments and think, that person just doesn't deserve that great gift. Like, that should be me. Um, that's, uh, if that's you, just say, hey, I just, I just need to repent of that. <laughs> that's not a very grace-filled way of thinking, right? If, if it's about grace, people who don't deserve will get things that they... That, um, that they, that they didn't deserve, right? And um, that's just going to be the case. God does not show partiality. He is a gift giver. He gave us his son, and he gave us more gifts even than that. Um, help, this helps us see how generous God is. Second, uh, the gifts, this is what the gifts do. This is how we see the gospel in the gifts, in case it wasn't clear before. We'll talk more about this. The gifts gospelize us or build us up from Ephesians 4, by reorienting us to the gospel, the greatest of spiritual gifts. So they're not just nice things we do for one another to kind of tempor- temporarily, physically benefit one another. They actually are graces. They actually are images of the greatest of gifts, be- that being Jesus Christ and him crucified and raised. It's kind of like when we... Um, Read about other church-related themes in the New Testament, like the idea that we are the new temple, the church is, the new temple of God. Or we are, as Christians, the seed of, or offspring of Abraham. You ever read those uh, par- parts or passages before in the New Testament? When you read that, and then you come, you come to this point in the Bible where you notice that when you keep reading, there's another important step, though, in those theological progressions from old to new that has nothing to do with us at all. And that is Christ is the seed of Abraham, the Bible says, in that he's the pinnacle of the line of faith. And Christ is the temple of God in that he is the ultimate pinnacle of the presence of God in the world, being God himself. And so it's only because we share in Christ that we are also said to be these things. It's only because we share in him that we are also said to be these things. And here's the thing for today. It's the same with spiritual gifts. Christ is the ultimate spiritual gift. Gifts exist for his sake. In fact, Ephesians 4 got at this, right? When it says, 
Grace was given to each Christian according to the measure of Christ's gift. And when Christ ascended, he did so that he might, quote, fill all things. So that means Christ is in all things. That, That means in all the gifts being used in a local church setting, in all the corners of the church, big and small, word and deed, all of a sudden Christ is filling more people. He's filling more relationships. He's filling more context. He's coming into more conversations. He's coming into more backyard barbecues. He's coming into more instances where we have an opportunity to help one another. He's filling all things like empty jars. So when you read in the New Testament then that this is kind of a mishmash of 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 4, but a statement like this, that God has appointed in the church prophets and he has given gifts of healing and helping and granting order to things, administrating. When God does that through people in a church setting, we must remember that all of these gifts are small measures of the greater gift. This is where the theology of spiritual gifts finds its heartbeat and comes alive. If we don't make these connections, it's just dead. It's just information that we file away. But what if it's actually Christ, actually Jesus himself, in and through the words and deeds of another Christian? They are small measures of the greater gift, and we are a small depiction of Christ's actual body. And so when prophecies happen then, big or small, they are a reflection of Jesus, who is the final word of God's grace. When biblical preaching happens, or when um, biblical prophetic encouragement happens over a cup of coffee and everything in between, when we use the Bible, which are God's words, and we're the body of Christ, we image the fact that God wants to speak to us. That's where prophecy really uh, marries with the idea of encouragement and edification in that way. When physical healings happen, they image Jesus, who is the healer of our sins, which is why he physically healed people at all in his ministry. Himself was to show forth what he would do later on the cross when all of our sin cancers would be healed. So we do that as well. Yes, on a lesser level, but on that type of related, lesser, varied grace kind of level. When helping happens, it's a whisper of Jesus, the one who helps us get out of our caskets. Or when order bringing happens or administrating, it's a reflection of this characteristic of Jesus, the stiller of chaos, the one who walks on waters and calms our sinful, chaotic, anxiety-ridden lives. Or how about Romans 12? Having gifts that differ according to the grace given us, let us use them. If service and our serving, the one who encourages and is encouraging, the one who gives in generosity, the one who does acts of mercy, let him do it with cheerfulness. Again, what do we think of when we read these lists? It should not ultimately, or at least first, be about you and what gift you have. But remember, all the words of the Bible belong to Jesus. They are his. He is the word. They belong. He's the great, he is the spiritual gift of the Bible. It's only because we share in him that we have them, right? So all the gifts find their finish line in Christ. They define what he did when he came into the world, why he's here. So if you're served and, and given to by a Christian, another Christian, it should make you think of, like, among other places, places like Mark 10, 45, where it said, the Son of Man has not come into the world to be served, but to serve us, there's the, the service gift, 
And to give his life, there's a generosity gift, give his life as a ransom for many. Right? When we serve and give to other Christians, we are putting on display that reality. If we don't connect these two things, it's just niceties at best. There's no power in it. But if we pray that Christ would be shown off through our actions and our words because we've been given to in accordance with Christ's gift, there is there's a lot more, a lot more power. Encouragement, same thing. Mercy, those are things Jesus did for us on the cross. All right, so, so here's where we kind of come back to. Hebrews 10.10 says, We have been saved through the offering of the body of Christ. We have been saved through the offering, the offering up, the giving over of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Or to use different Genesis 2 language from earlier, we have been made from the rib or the side of the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. We are Eve. Once and for all, this has been done. We are the body of Christ. And this is, the, this is where the gospel comes into this idea again. Remember this. We are the body of Christ because of this event. We are the body of Christ because God opened up the side of another Adam and just made us by grace. When we believed, we became one with him. Not based on our works. Or maybe it helps to hear it this way. You are not the body of Christ because you keep the teachings of Jesus. That's not, that, that does not make you the body of Christ. That makes you the body of Christ. What made Eve a part of Adam's body? You are not the body of Christ because you keep the teachings of Jesus or keep the Ten Commandments. That's not what the Bible teaches. Though we keep the teachings of Christ, to become a part of, biblically speaking, where, where we see this play out in the Bible, on the bookend kind of ways we've been talking about, to be a part of someone's body is to be made from suffering, to be made from brokenness, to be made from the side or the rib. We are saved by grace, not by our works. We are reunited as sinners to God because of this side, rib, breaking, piercing moment in this second Adamic kind of way. Only because this happened are we called the, the body, not because we follow a few teachings. Non-Christians do that all the time, but they're not the body of Christ. What makes us the body is we believe in him. We cast ourselves and all of our cares upon him there and we say, save me from my sins. Please have mercy. Please be generous to me. Show me mercy. Lead me. Prophetically speak a word of encouragement over me in my darkest hour. Raise me from the dead. Help me out of my caskets. Still the chaotic sea of sins in my heart and welcome me to, to your banqueting table. This is, this is what we pray. And this is what makes us saved. And so... Church, then, I think, is a constant dance between resting in this truth that we're saved by grace, understanding that we share in this truth that we're his body, and being motivated, then, to embody and speak this truth over other Christians continually, using our gifts. And this is why the church is most healthy when everyone is identifying and using their gifts, because... More gifts means more Jesus. And more Jesus means more health. Plain and simple. 
Here's the thing, though. This is the last piece. This will mean a type of suffering for the church's sake, right? When Christ gave his body to create us, like Adam to Eve, but in a greater way now, Jesus to his church, when, when he was pierced in the side and gave his body on that cross, he suffered to give the gift of salvation, right? Suffering preceded the, it was what unlocked the gift. His suffering unlocked the gift. Without his suffering, there was no spiritual gift. And I mean gift of salvation given to us, not just spiritual gifts, gift of salvation. That's the paradigm for us as well in the church because we can't love people and use a gift without suffering a little bit, right? Like think of all those gifts. If you use any of them, you're missing some time, you're suffer- you're, there, there's some energy you're expending, uh, you're pouring yourself out you know, through a, a sermon or a teaching or a word of encouragement. We, just, we can't love or serve or give or speak on any level without a little bit of suffering, a little bit of cost to us. And again, the church then being endowed with graces that are unlocked for the suffering, with our suffering for others, um, this is what it's all about. In this, we continue to image Jesus. When you suffer for people, and then they're benefited, that's what God did for you. He suffered so you might benefit. The church is a constant, cyclical, everyday replaying of that drama in big, medium-sized, and small ways, in words of many and various kinds and deeds of, and, of many and various kinds, constantly. And so the, the invitation here is, is kind of twofold. This is what the scriptures, when we talk about the body of Christ, this is what we're invited to. Believe in the gospel for the forgiveness of your sins. Then, as a Christian, build up the church by pointing the church back to him. Back to the love he showed us on the cross with your spiritual gifts as much as possible. And as I said earlier, literally for the rest of your life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, this theme in the Bible. Thank you for the gospel embedded in it. Uh, Thank you that we come from your side and your crucifixion and uh, your rib-piercing moments. Uh, That's ultimately where where we came from your body. Uh, So thank you that we are saved then by grace. We're saved by a broken husband. Or saved by God becoming, taking on flesh, descending to earth, descending to the tomb, then ascending and leading a host of captives out of the tomb himself and giving gifts to us. The gift of himself ultimately and other spiritual gifts too as ripples and whispers and effects and echoes of that one great Christ event 2,000 years ago. And so God, help our church to do that when we talk to each other, when we encourage, when we serve when we preach and teach uh, on big or small levels, um, when we die for one another in love, may that drama be lived out over and over and over again. Um, it's, they're all about you. Thank you that there are no gifts that drive us back to the law. There are no spiritual gifts in the Bible that point us back to the Ten Commandments or point us back to the law. They are all gifts that flow from your broken side. They are all gifts that relate to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Entirely. Entirely. 
because that and that alone is our new focus. In Christ we pray. Amen.